Hey, Mike here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Dark Poutine early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome to Dark Poutine. It is hot in here. Holy schnitzel. Yeah, the Yumber Yard is not air-conditioned, so bear with us. I'm Mike Brown, creator and host. With me, as usual, is my good friend and quickly disappearing due to sweat, Scott Hemingway. I'm hot. Scott is hot. Thermatically, I'm hot. Yeah, you're definitely not hot the other way. We didn't have to go there. Well, I, think I, I just... I think I'm pretty cute. Sure. Holy Christ. <laughs> oh. so my con- contribution this week is just breathing. Okay. Insane, holy shit. <laughs> Dark poutine is not for the faint of heart or squeamish, as our content contains mature themes, harsh language, and graphic descriptions of violent crimes. Listener discretion is strongly advised. We are not experts on any of the topics we present, nor are we professional journalists. We are just two regular Canadians interested in the darker side of Canadian history and possibly getting some air conditioning. <laughs> I'm going to pull one of those ice packs down my pants. Yeah, I've got them on the computer right now. I know. People will have to listen to the fan whine. Well, I mean, I'm not only a fan, I'm a participant. <sighs> no, not that. Not you, fan. No, but Mike. Let's get to it. Put on your toque, grab yourself a double-double and an Animo bar and an ice cream. <laughs> ice cream. <laughs> some, some A cold root beer. A cold root beer. Yeah. Drink up. Drink a Canada dry. How about a Canada oh, dry? Oh, yeah, ginger ale. Ginger ale. Yeah, there we go. It's time to scarf down some dark poutine. episode 32 32 and that's one more than 31 it is numerically that is correct yes we want to start out by thanking our regular subscribers and welcome our new listeners we appreciate that you're filling your ears with our dark poutine yeah the visual is always fantastic it's mushy gooey i just like picture people with stringy Cheese curds and gravy sticking out of their ears. If you think about like hot gravy in your ear, not hot. Like, who wants cold poutine? True, fair enough. So put hot gravy in your ear. (laughs) That would that might smart. Yeah, yeah. hell yeah. Well, if you put the cheese in first. Okay. Yeah. On August fourteenth, nineteen eighty. 20-year-old Canadian actress and reigning Playboy Playmate of the Year, Dorothy Stratton, was found murdered in the bedroom of her home in West L.A. Her killer, Paul Leslie Snyder, her estranged husband, was found slumped against the wall nearby, dead from a self-inflicted shotgun blast to the head. Murder-suicide. The best sources for this story I found while researching were Teresa Carpenter's 1981 Pulitzer Prize-winning magazine feature, Death of a Playmate. 
And writer, director, and actor Peter Bogdanovich's book, The Killing of the Unicorn, Dorothy Stratton, 1960 to 1980. Hmm. Bogdanovich was involved with Dorothy Stratton at the time of her death. Oh, wow. And you might remember Peter Bogdanovich playing the shrink of Tony Soprano's shrink in The Sopranos. Oh, oh okay. Yeah. Oh, poor girl's only 20. Good Because it was in the 80s, my mind makes, it tricks me to thinking she's older, but just well, 20. Yeah, and we'll, we'll get into that. Dorothy Ruth Hoogstraten was born on February 28, 1960 in Vancouver, British Columbia. Mm-hmm. Right here. To recent Dutch immigrants Nellie, a housewife, and Simon Hoogstraten, a carpenter. Their marriage was already unhappy at the time of Dorothy's birth. Yeah. Regardless, the Hoogstrattons went on to have another son, John, in 1961. After Dorothy and John traveled to the Netherlands with Nellie in the summer of 1963, Simon left the family for another woman and the Hoogstrattons later divorced. Mm. Nellie took care of Dorothy and John for the next few years until she remarried and Nellie gave birth to another daughter, Louise, in 1968. Dorothy's new stepfather was a violent bully. Nellie left this man the day he broke young John's arm, and they were on their own again. Nellie worked and saved up to buy a small house east of Vancouver in Coquitlam. Dorothy began helping with Louise while her mom was out working. As well, at seven years old, Dorothy started earning money to help the family, taking on odd jobs. You hear that, Violet and Olivia? Seven. Yeah. They, they better get cracking. They're already in the 7 and 11. Hey, my kids are, no, my kids are 8 and 11 now. So it's like, come on. Get on you, it. You got a couple of years of backlog to make up. Man. That's right. Especially that Violet. Lazy bastards. Your kids are awesome. Oh, they are. Dorothy was a smart girl and did very well in school. All A's. Just like most teenagers, Dorothy developed thoughts she wasn't as pretty as the other girls in school. She thought she was plain. She said she had big hands. Oh. She started isolating uh, when she wasn't at school or work and took up smoking. Yeah. Well, 80s, it was a much more acceptable thing. Well, it would have been the 70s then. Oh, yes, even more prevalent. Yeah. Marlboro Man. Dorothy also began to write poetry to express her inner angst and would do so until she died. Here's a poem she wrote in the early 70s indicating her innate thoughtfulness. A foot meets the pavement for a moment. The remains of a lowly earthworm whose life was terminated in the creation of a footprint dries up slowly. At its journey's end, a foot dries up slowly in a coffin only to be transformed into soil by a lowly earthworm. Wow. That's pretty thoughtful for somebody who's like 13 or 14 years old. Yeah, absolutely. Deep. At 14, Dorothy went to work part-time at the Dairy Queen that still stands at 2019 East Hastings Street in East Vancouver on the corner of Hastings and Lakewood. Try to visualize it. I know exactly where it is. We'll talk more about that later. Dorothy started going with her first steady boyfriend, a classmate at 16 years old. However, in 1978, when Paul Leslie Snyder walked into the Dairy Queen wearing a fur coat with a blonde woman on his arm, Dorothy noticed him. He was a slick-looking character with dark hair and a mustache. Mike? I'm not a slick-looking character. Sure, dark hair and a mustache. Snyder noticed Dorothy, too. He turned to his friend and observed, that girl could make me a lot of money. Uh. Dorothy was tall, five foot nine, and looked mature beyond her 18 years. Jeez, I think any time a, a guy looks at a girl and says she can make me a lot of money. Guess what's coming. Yeesh. Another waitress gave Paul Dorothy's home number and he called her a short time later. 
Paul began grooming Dorothy right away, telling her she was beautiful. She kind of was, though. Well, I'm sure. Playboy Playmate and everything, but I don't think he's like a small business owner and he has a job opening. He runs a small business that I'll get into here in a Oh, sec. okay. So this is all just legit. He's, oh, he's just Yeah, he's yeah, just like... Legitimate. We're totes in need of a janitor. Uh, no. no. Paul Leslie Snyder was a known quantity on Vancouver's now notorious downtown east side. Mm, uh-huh. It was pretty seedy back then, too. Yeah. Snyder was born to Jewish parents in Vancouver in 1951. Among the rougher crowd, Paul was well known as a small-time nightclub promoter and for running a stable of girls downtown. Oh, okay. Well. Uh, From Teresa Carpenter's article, quote, He wore mink, drove a black Corvette, and flaunted a bejeweled Star of David around his neck. About town, he was known as the Jewish pimp, end quote. Oh, jeez. I, I laugh just because of the, his name, but uh, yeah, yeah. I don't have a lot of uh, soft spots for pimps. You don't have a pimp cup and a pimp cane, Scott? Nope. Yet. Not yet. He owed a lot of money to the wrong folks and had to watch his back around the city. Dorothy couldn't resist Paul. He was sophisticated and came from a different world. Paul bought Dorothy a topaz and diamond ring. She loved it. Nellie, however, did not approve of Paul, but Dorothy was smitten. There wasn't much Nellie could do. Yeah. Dorothy's father, Simon, hadn't been involved in her life at all since she was only four years old. Paul Snyder was the first man to provide any kind of attention and affection to Dorothy in a long time. Which is just going to be, it's going to make her feel so great. Dorothy and her flashy dressed pimp boyfriend went to her high school grad dance in Coquitlam. Can you imagine what everybody was thinking of this guy? Here's this man, nine years older than his 18-year-old date. I'm sure wearing mink. I'm sure. Yeah. There, there's lots of photos with him with his wide lapeled shirts and uh, sparkly pants. And probably some platform shoes, I'm imagining. Yes. It's the 70s. No. No, because she's from in the 60s. So yeah, late 70s. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah this is perfect platform shoes. You need to stop with the dates. <laughs> I try to put timelines together in my noggin. Yeah, it's not working, though. Well, you know, man. Dorothy wanted to escape her job at the Dairy Queen. That was no kind of job for a grown woman. Dorothy had eyes on an office job. She applied for a position in the secretarial pool at BC Tell, now tell us. Paul had other plans for Dorothy, though. He wanted to use her physical assets in a different way. Paul made an appointment with a local German photographer named Uwe Meyer. No relation to Uwe Boll, I don't think. <laughs> Just happened to Uwe. I guess Uwe is a German name. People are usually related when it's their last names that are the same. Correct. Yeah, not the first. <laughs> Meyer took Dorothy's first professional photos. He too was wowed by what he saw in front of his lens. Dorothy loved the photo so much, a month later Paul convinced her to have more photos done. This time, Dorothy would be nude. Although nervous at first, Dorothy relaxed quickly and started to have fun. Paul had more photos done by Ken Honey, a photographer already known to Playboy. Mm. Honey's photos were the ones that were sent to Playboy, and they caused a sensation in their offices. Just as Dorothy was starting her job at BC Tell, she was whisked off to L.A. for test shots at Playboy. That hurts. This would be something quite exciting. Being whisked off to a different country. Yeah. Yeah. Playboy loved Dorothy and began to consider her as their 25th anniversary playmate. They styled her hair and changed her name from Hook Stratton to Stratton. 
Hugh Hefner was so impressed, he got Dorothy a work permit and a job as a bunny at the Century City Playboy Club. Wow. Yeah, so she had to wear the little bunny outfit. And... I hope she gave two weeks notice at BC Tell, though. Uh, there is a note. Oh, okay. Uh, where she says that she's going to be back, but I guess she didn't come back. Well, you don't burn bridges. You want to be able to fall back on that BC Tell job. Well. Dorothy was on her way. Paul Leslie Snyder saw dollar signs. Dorothy was his ticket to the big time. Playboy also arranged an acting agent for Dorothy named David Wilder. Immediately, Wilder began shopping Dorothy's fresh face around town. Film and TV producers were impressed too. Dorothy quickly got bit parts in Americanthon. I've never seen. Americanathon? Americanathon, I guess. Skate Town, USA, which I've seen. Have you? Uh, little bits of it. I don't even think I need to. The name alone, I think I know exactly. It is uh, roller skates and lemme. Yeah. Yeah. Fantasy Island. Really? The plane. The plane. The plane is landing on me, bus. <laughs> no, I don't think he said it was landing on me. Okay. <laughs> this is this my Hervé Villages. Like, first off. And speaking no, of people who killed themselves with shotguns. Oh, that's right. And, and not I make, wonder if he used a, a sawed off. Oh, my God, Mike. That was bad. My God. So forgive well, me. Welcome. You're, wow, I'll right see you in hell. hell. Yeah. Jesus. Oh, boy. I shouldn't have done that. But it was pretty funny. It was. She also had a bit part in Buck Rogers in the 25th Century. Do you remember oh, that show? Oh, my God. I love With it. Tweaky? Beedy, beedy, Get down, Buck. Beedy, beedy. Oh, I'm trying to remember the guy around it, Dr. Cornelius. That's right. Yeah, around his neck. Yeah. Dr. Cornelius. Yeah. Ask, yeah. ask me something about basic math. Nope. You want to know what the little <laughs> amulet around Tweaky's, uh, Tweaky's uh, neck and Buck Rogers? Gotcha. Dr. Cornelius. Dorothy was not going to be the 25th anniversary playmate, although she'd come close. They went with somebody who was a little more experienced. Well, she was only 18 at the time. Uh. Hugh Hefner gave her the August 1979 centerfold as a consolation prize. So not a bad. I'm sure still, like, you know, uh, was quite the honor. Absolutely. Mm. At a Saturday night Vancouver Canadians game in July 1979, the Vancouver-born newly minted Playboy Playmate came to Nat Bailey Stadium to throw out the ceremonial first pitch. Coincidentally, today is the uh, first game of the new season for the Vancouver Canadians. Vancouver Canadians. Yeah. And th they were the farm team for the Expos at one point, were they uh, not? The Cubs, Sammy Sosa actually spent time... I don't know. I think it was the I think he played with the Cubs, but he Sammy Sosa actually spent time playing with the Canadians. Cool. He, yeah. The ever-present Paul Snyder was an irritant. He was trying to control all aspects of Dorothy's career. He was often in the way and a huge distraction for Dorothy, demanding her attention. When she was on set, he would call. When she was uh, at a photo shoot, he would call. He wanted to be involved all the time, and he didn't want her to forget. Yeah. Yeah. Who made her? Sounds like a stellar fella. Stellar fella. Yeah. Snyder was described as an earache by one photographer who agreed to take photos of him just to shut him up. <laughs> yeah, I, can, I get it. An earache. I get it. Paul wanted all of Dorothy's attention, as I mentioned. Yep. His jealous side began to rear its head frequently. He was a loudmouth and a bully. He started berating Dorothy to keep her under his thumb, telling her she owed him. And she'd be nothing without him. Yep. Controlling. They ran off to Las Vegas at his urging and got married. Control. 
even after Hugh Hefner gently told Dorothy that Paul was not a good guy. Hmm. At one point, a friend bought Dorothy a puppy. Paul claimed loudly that Dorothy loved the puppy more than him. Oh, God. A week later, after she got the dog, it turned up dead. <sighs> Friends suspected that Paul killed the puppy out of jealousy. I have no doubt. Yeah. Dorothy got her first lead role in a campy film called Autumnborn about a rich young woman who was kidnapped and taken to a school of, quote, discipline. Okay. I, I know. 70s. 70s. Yes. And beautiful woman and control. Like yeah. it, it was all just a reason to get women in bikinis. She could actually act, though. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. That's one thing that was refreshing. Oh. She was easy to direct. She was an up-and-comer. Yeah. She was cast again in a sci-fi comedy called Galaxina as a sexy automaton who piloted the ship as the others slept in suspended animation. Paul did try to make his own headway, creating the male Chippendale dancers. So that was him. Okay. He stole freely from the look of the Playboy bunnies uh, using their cuffs and, mm -hmm. and those kind of things. However, he was pushed out by his business partners. He became really resentful. Yeah, you know, it sounds like one of those individuals who, if wasn't a sociopath, had some smarts to him. Like he obviously, if he helped create Chippendales, which had yeah. become very successful, uh, he had something there, but don't care piece of shit. It's about to get more interesting. Uh, Paul built a wooden bondage rack, complete with straps and movable legs for his kinky control fetish. Oh, oh okay. Their friends kind of made fun of this rack that he had built. Understandably. Saying, you, what's, what's that for? If you had a strange rack hanging around in your home, I'd be making jokes. Playboy was impressed by the sales of Dorothy's issue, and the fan response was positive as well. Oh. Dorothy's star was on the rise. She was chosen as Playboy's Playmate of the Year for 1980, and she'd spent five months shooting over 20,000 photos. Wow, well, good honor. Dorothy went back to New York to shoot They All Laughed, a film by Peter Bogdanovich. Oh, okay. And she left Paul behind in L.A. He was not happy that she was leaving him behind, especially because he was suspicious of her relationship with Peter Bogdanovich. Yeah, yeah. Dorothy flew back briefly in April for an appearance with Johnny Carson on The Tonight Show. Here's some audio of that appearance. You can watch the video from our link in the show notes for this episode. Yesterday she was named Playmate of the Year. Mm. So we thought um, we would say the dessert to last well, sure tonight. Would you welcome Dorothy Stratton. Dorothy. How are you? Good. Oh. I that you. Me? By golly, that's you. You really are a lovely young lady. Thank you. I saw you. You were on the news last night, I think, uh, on the local newscast. When the, did you know? How, how long before did you know that you were selected as Playmate um, of the Year? Well, we started shooting the issue sometime in October of 1979. Right. And we finished in March of 1980. Right. So we shot for quite a few months. You, uh, you're from Vancouver, uh -huh. I imagine. Well, now, what did you do in Vancouver? Were you a professional model at all before? No, I just graduated from high school when uh, I was approached by Playboy, and I was working in a telephone company. I was a clerk typist. You're putting me on. No, I worked there just six weeks before they carried me away. <laughs> that was a good, good move. 
the only good thing that ever came out of the telephone company. <laughs> Somebody said, you know, what, what's his business of, uh, what's his business of working in an ice cream stand? I worked there for four years, um, yeah. part-time while I was going through high school. Right. And uh, one day, this gentleman walked in with this gorgeous blonde, this long fur coat, and right. I had him sitting at, um, waiting on him at the Dairy Queen, two little pigtails and a little red smock on, and I said, can I help you? And he says, what's your name? And <laughs> it happened from there. Just, it's like something you would uh, hear in a, in a movie, right? Yeah. And they said, come to Hollywood. And uh -huh. Were you a little reluctant? Did you think maybe it was uh, some kind of a trick or something? Oh, well, uh, when I was being asked if I would... Uh, Playboy was looking for a 25th anniversary girl then, so it was right. a big contest. And when I was asked if I would pose for the magazine, um, I couldn't talk to my mother about it because she was in Europe, so I had to make the decision on my own. Ah. And uh, my boyfriend, who is my husband now, um, just uh, said that it was the best thing for me to do. And so after about three weeks, I finally decided I would. Yeah. So there we go. He's uh, he's the one making the decisions. Sounds like he's calling the shots. That made me sad. She sounds just so sweet and nice. Well, mm. imagine you're 19 years old. Yeah. And you are, you rock it to stardom, essentially. And, and likely feeling insecure. Um you know, again, we talked about no father figure, and along comes this individual who's, like, sweeping you off your feet, promising you riches and fame, and it's happening. And Yep. But, yeah, oh, poor girl. You can just, like, you just get the sense that she just, um, just young and naive in this predator. Yes. Took advantage of that. Absolutely. More from Teresa Carpenter's article. Quote, Snyder by now realized that his empire was illusory. As her husband, he technically had claimed to half her assets, but many of her assets were going into a corporation called Dorothy Stratton Enterprises. Pretty smart. When she spoke of financial settlements, she sounded like she was reading a strange script. She was being advised, he suspected, by Bogdanovich's lawyers. Dorothy's attorney, Wayne Alexander, reportedly represents Bogdanovich too, but Alexander cannot be reached for comment. Late in June... Snyder received a letter declaring that he and Dorothy were separated physically and financially. She closed out their joint bank accounts and began advancing him money through her business manager, end quote. Oh, it was awesome at first, so she separated from him. Dorothy and Bogdanovich had, in fact, fallen in love on the set of They All Laughed, and Snyder was enraged. Oh. He did not like playing the part of the cuckold. Okay. Well, nobody does. Well, there's... well, I guess, yeah, there's a fetish for that. Yeah, there's a fetish for everything. He knew he had neither the sophistication or wealth to go to war with Peter Bogdanovich, so all he could do was sit back and fume. He tried to get Dorothy back, but he was thwarted at every attempt. There was too much legal mumbo-jumbo in the way. Mm. He just couldn't get through to her. It's another one of those things that, hey, don't be a piece of shit, and people might like you. You had her, and you were a piece of shit. Yes. And so she left you. So try not being a piece of shit, people. Yeah, there's that. There is that avenue that you could travel down yep. and be yeah. nice to the person that you're with. Just saying. Just saying. Be a kind and supportive uh, well, husband. It's weird how people tend to want to be around that kind of person. Well. It's weird. In early August of 1980, Dorothy finally faced Paul to tell him that she was leaving him for good. 
She had moved in with Peter Bogdanovich, who was 21 years older than her. She said they were in love. Dorothy told Paul she was going to take care of him, which was most likely the last straw to his already bruised pride. Ain't no kidding. When Dorothy left, Paul Snyder went into a manic tailspin. He knew he'd lost her, and she was his meal ticket. Mm -hmm. Paul had been talking about guns a lot. He wanted a shotgun for, quote, home protection. Sure, sure. On Monday, August 11, 1980, Snyder purchased a Mossberg 12-gauge pump action from a classified ad in the paper. The same day, Dorothy called Paul. She wanted to settle up with him financially. They planned to meet on Thursday morning, August 14th at 11.30 a.m. She wanted to be finished with Paul. Mm-hmm. Paul picked up his shotgun on Wednesday. The seller even gave him a few quick lessons on how to use it. People remember Paul was in pretty good spirits at that time. Mm. Peter Bogdanovich told Dorothy he believed Snyder was dangerous. He knew that Paul was having her followed. He didn't want her to meet with him anymore. At least not alone. Dorothy said Paul wanted to settle amicably, and she wanted to take advantage of his apparent change in mood. Yeah, I get it. On August 14, 1980, at 12.30 p.m., Dorothy pulled into the driveway of 10881 West Clarkson Road in Rancho Park, West Los Angeles. This was the two-bedroom, two-bath, 1,424-square-foot home that Dorothy and Paul had shared after their marriage in Vegas on June 1, 1979. Mm. Dorothy had just dropped off her sister Louise at the beach after they had gone shoe shopping. She was happy hanging out with Louise and was looking forward to spending more time with her little sister. The P.I. who had been tailing Dorothy saw her lock her 1967 Mercury and head inside. The P.I. called Paul later, asking him how things were going. Paul indicated in a code that they'd worked out that all was good. The P.I. called back later that afternoon a few times and no one answered. At 6.30 that night, Louise told Peter Bogdanovich that Dorothy had gone to see Paul that afternoon. Dorothy said she would be back between 2 and 2.30, and she still wasn't. Mm. At 7 p.m., Dorothy Stratton and Paul Leslie Snyder were discovered deceased in the bedroom that they'd previously shared. Both Dorothy and Paul were found nude and in full rigor mortis at the time. Dorothy was halfway onto the bed. She'd been killed by a single shotgun blast to the left side of her temple. Oh, God. The bones in Dorothy's face had been shattered by the blast, turning her head to a massive pulp. It was clear she'd been moved around after her death, and one of her fingers on her left hand was also blown off. Probably defensive. That was the last uh, act that she... Yeah. Evidence showed that Paul had raped Dorothy both before and after her death. Oh, Paul's blood-stained bondage rack was nearby, set to a position for sodomy. Dorothy had been violently sodomized both pre- and post-mortem. Oh, my God. Paul was propped up against the wall next to his shotgun. An arc of blood smeared the wall and ceiling behind him. Paul had taken the time to write a suicide note, blaming others for what had transpired before blowing his own brains out. Of course, it wasn't his fault. Of course. Paul still had some of Dorothy's hair in his hand when they were found. It was determined that Dorothy had died at 1 p.m., only a half hour after entering the home, and that Paul was dead an hour later at 2. What conversation there was between Dorothy and Paul over that half hour is unknown. The only two who could answer that question are dead. Playboy released a statement. 
The death of Dorothy Stratton comes as a shock to us all. As Playboy's Playmate of the Year, with a film and television career of increasing importance, her professional future was a bright one. But equally sad to us is the fact that her loss takes from us a very special member of the Playboy family. Nice statement. Hefner himself was more candid in his interview with Teresa Carpenter in her article. Quote, the major reason that I'm that we're both sitting here, says Hefner, that I wanted to talk about it is because there's still a great tendency for this thing to fall into the classic cliche of small town girl comes to Playboy, comes to Hollywood, life in the fast lane, and that was somehow related to her death. And that is not what really happened. A very sick guy saw his meal ticket and his connection to power, whatever, slipping away, and it was that that made him kill her, end quote. Yeah, I mean, I'm not jazzed at the fact that his first statements are in defense of him and uh, his business as opposed to... But I haven't read the full article. Maybe he's already done that a bunch. But uh, I do I do get what he's saying. Vancouver's not a small town. But I do, I do agree with his assessment of uh, a guy who saw his meal ticket to power and yep. money. Peter Bogdanovich had Dorothy cremated and her ashes were buried in a coffin days after her murder at the Westwood Memorial Park in West Los Angeles. Yeah. Here's Bogdanovich's statement. Dorothy Stratton was as gifted and intelligent an actress as she was beautiful. And she was very beautiful indeed, in every way imaginable, most particularly in her heart. She and I fell in love during our picture and had planned to be married as soon as her divorce was final. The loss to her mother, father, and sister and brother, to my children, to her friends, and to me is larger than we can calculate. But there is no life Dorothy's touch that has not been changed for the better through knowing her, however. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Briefly. Dorothy looked at the world with love and believed that all people were good down deep. She was mistaken, but it is among the most generous and noble errors we can make. I know that's a, that's a wonderful statement. And that is from Peter Bogdanovich. Yeah, yeah it's all just uh, a her, about her and how wonderful she was, and that's uh, how it should be. No one buried Paul Snyder in Hollywood. Good. He was sent back to British Columbia, and he was buried uh, at the Shara Sedek Cemetery, a Jewish cemetery in New West. In November 1980, the B-movie studio Crown Pictures International released their low-budget sci-fi film, Galaxina. Hmm. Here's the audio from the trailer. Once upon a time that hasn't happened yet, there will be a spaceship called the Infinity. And steering the infinity among the heavenly bodies will be the most heavenly body of them all, called Galaxina, a dream machine, transistorized and computerized to lead her space buddies across the farthest reaches of fantastic adventure with class. Venusian Thunder Ripple, 2001, a great year. Great. Galaxina, the beautiful. Galaxina, the untouchable. 
Galaxina the Invincible. She cleans, she cooks, she does windows and more. I've adjusted my temperature. I'm better than a human woman. Galaxina, starring Stephen Mock, Avery Schreiber, James David Hinton, and introducing Dorothy R. Stratton, Playboy's Playmate of the Year as your favorite gal, Galaxina. I want to be a member of the intergalactic jet set. Yeah, here's a synopsis of the film. Galaxina is a lifelike, voluptuous android who is assigned to oversee the operations of an intergalactic space police cruiser captained by the incompetent Cornelius Butt. Oh, oh boy. When a mission requires the ship's crew to be placed in suspended animation for decades, Galaxina finds herself alone for many years, developing emotions and falling in love with the ship's pilot, Thor. Rotten Tomato gives it a generous 17% out of 100. What? Come on, Rotten Tomato. Sounds like at least an 80. Carol and I uh, were watching it while researching this episode, and uh, she said, it's so bad, it's maddening. <laughs> That's a... Uh makes me really want to see it. The film starts with a shitty Star Wars-style scroll, which I'm sure pissed off George Lucas. In yeah. fact, they rip off just about every 1970s science fiction franchise. Yeah. There are elements of, like, Star Wars Battlestar Galactica, uh, the old one, and even Captain's Log entries by Cornelius, or as he calls himself, Corny Butt. Uh, as well as many others like Alien and even Young Frankenstein when they say a particular phrase. Yeah, it's kind of... Well, it's just the classic Hollywood grab. Yep. The ship Infinity looks like an angry dildo. This piece of cinematic caca, which is supposed to be a sexy sci-fi comedy, but more has the feeling of a porno that never quite happens right down to the performers in acting. <laughs> Captain Cornelius Butt, played by Avery Schrieber... Looks like a cross between singer Freddie Fender and a male porn star, Ron Jeremy, a.k.a. The Hedgehog. I saw this a couple of years after its release on the Star Channel one night. I didn't realize that uh, Dorothy Stratton, who she was, and that she had already passed away when I'd seen mm -hmm. the film. Mm -hmm. I remember finding her quite fetching. Uh, I would imagine so. I mean, she was 19 at the time. Like, yeah, well, yeah. actually 18 when she was filming. 18 and 19 oh, wow. when she was filming that. Wow. And I, I really liked her form-fitting outfits. You don't say. I did. Huh. Uh, the movie just kind of ends out of nowhere. Probably for the better. Yeah, it was nominated for an award, the Stinker's Bad Movie Awards. Uh, least special special effects, but lost to a movie called The Apple. And The Apple is like, a, it's about a futuristic romp where in 1994, a young couple enters the world of the music industry and subsequently the world of drugs. No. But anyway, although Galaxina was Dorothy's most memorable role, sadly, uh, the one that truly highlights her ability to act, her on-screen presence and potential as a film star is probably Bogdanovich's They All Laughed. I watched that too. Yeah. Bogdanovich wrote the role for Dorothy and cast John Ritter as the man who falls in love with her from afar. Bogdanovich said he fell in love with Dorothy from afar, and so Ritter is playing him. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. 
And it's quite, I mean, there's there's some real moments in that in that movie where you can see that had she lived, mm-hmm. she would have been a star. Like she was already a star two yeah. years into her career and she was she was already a superstar. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But um but yeah, you could see that she did definitely add some acting chops. Oh, that's Bogdanovich dedicated uh, the film to the memory of Dorothy Stratton, and they all laughed. Came out in 1981, and it flopped hard. Hmm. Peter Bogdanovich had to put his own money into the film's distribution, as after Dorothy's murder, no major studio wanted anything to do with a movie that would be immediately associated with an actress's horrific end. Oh, man. Bogdanovich still calls this film his personal favorite, and you can see why. Yeah, absolutely. In 1985, Hugh Hefner spoke on the record about Dorothy's murder, throwing Peter Bogdanovich under the bus. Oh. Dorothy loved Playboy. Dorothy's tragic death was motivated, not in any way, by her association with Playboy, but clearly by the breakup of her marriage because of the affair with Peter Bogdanovich. Yeah, again, he... Hefner seems more focused on removing any blame from his organization. Yeah, and he maintained that position till the end of his life. Really? Yeah. Mm. After spending years traveling back and forth to Vancouver, writing his book about Dorothy's life, Peter Bogdanovich, then 49, married Dorothy's 20-year-old sister, Louise. And there was no proof of this, but he had been accused of... uh, having an affair with the 16-year-old Louise right after Dorothy's death. Oh, God. Yeah, and Louise and Peter Bogdanovich broke up in 2001. There have been uh, many news articles and documentaries about the tragic death of Dorothy Stratton over the years. One TV movie, Death of a Centerfold, the Dorothy Stratton story starred Jamie Lee Curtis as Dorothy. And another feature called Star 80 cast Mariel Hemingway, no relation to Scott Hemingway. Yeah, it depends on who's asking. As Dorothy Stratton and Eric Roberts as the oily Paul Leslie. Hmm. And I have some personal story about this particular movie. Oh, yeah? I worked as a second assistant director on some additional photography for a film called In Her Line of Fire, starring Mariel Hemingway. Yeah. She was really cool to work with. She was super friendly, always wanted to just chat, like Mm. take you aside and just chat. Yeah. And I was in that position where I was dealing with the talent all the time. So she was my buddy for those few days where we worked together. Yeah. You know, because that's what happens. One afternoon while we were waiting for a tough special effects shot and a water tank to be set up, uh... We had some downtime at the circus, and for those of you who don't know, the circus is what you call the area with the trucks, like the catering trucks, tents, cast hair, makeup, and the AD trailers are set up near the filming location. Part of my job at the time was to check on the comfort of the stars, and so I knocked on Marilyn Hemingway's trailer door to see how she was doing, to let her know that she wouldn't have to be at set for about an hour. Okay. And uh, she was doing yoga. Oh, And invited me to come on inside and, and have a seat. Wow. And she and I just spent about uh, a half hour chatting, and uh, I listened to her tell me stories about the film business and, and, and that kind of stuff, because I was asking her questions, of course. Yeah. And one particular story stood out. Hmm. Now I know why this is the only one that I remember, because here we are doing this thing. Marielle told me that Eric Roberts had not been fun to work with. Yeah, that, that's been rumored for 
ever. Well, she said that during Star 80, he would stomp on her foot and even spat in her face at one one point to get a reaction. Fuck. She She was not a fan of his after that. No kidding. And here she is playing Dorothy Stratton, a beautiful girl who is being bullied by a man. So I guess this guy is a, a method actor. Uh, well... I took method acting as well, but I don't recall any kind of uh, stomp on people's foot and spit in their face kind of training. Yeah. No, I was taught respect. Yeah, not assault. No, not to assault my fellow actors. I had no idea that one day I'd be recalling this story after telling Dorothy's story on a podcast like 12 years later. No kidding. Apparently portions of Star 80 were filmed in the home where Dorothy was murdered. Oh, wow. 10881... Uh, West Clarkson Road. They even filmed in the actual bedroom where the murder-suicide had re- occurred. Oh, jeez, okay. Isn't that creepy? Yeah. Carol and I have eaten at the Dairy Queen on East Hastings a few times. It's a dump. It's kind of close to, like, On Lock and Lucky Penny and those Chinese restaurants as you come down f- the hill from Nanaimo. Mm, yeah. Between right. Nanaimo and Clark. Mm. I'm I'm sure... Next time I drive by, I'll go, oh, that one. Yes. Time might be limited for that. Dairy Queen, a developer, has bought the property and is proposing a condo development on the site. But as of this telling, Dorothy's old place of employment is still there. That Dairy Queen that I have called the saddest Dairy Queen in the world. Oh, poor sad Dairy Queen. It is a pretty sad Dairy Queen. Well, it, the neighborhood it's in doesn't attract the best clientele, yeah. clearly. And maybe it didn't in the 1970s either. Yeah, it's going to be torn down. The story of Dorothy Stratton is a sad one, in particular as she was murdered so young. Like, I just look at the video of her that I I watched, and it's she still looks older than her years. Yeah. she The way she carries herself, and mm-hmm. you would never guess that she was an 18, 19-year-old girl, essentially. Yeah, yeah. wow. It also begs questions about the exploitation of one young woman by so many men who seem to see her as either an asset or an object to be possessed. Well, that's kind of what I what I was getting. You like talk- this string of guys. Like, yeah. okay, you have Paul Leslie Snyder, you have Hugh Hefner, and you have Peter Bogdanovich, and they are all sort of shades of the same thing. Yeah, yeah, I couldn't agree more. Yeah. yeah. From a 16-page memoir that Dorothy wrote the year of her death, uh will be the last words in this story. She wrote, Sometimes I cried before I went to sleep. This is talking about her time at the Playboy Mansion. Mm -hmm. A lot of men were entering my life all of a sudden, and a lot of them wanted me. No one was ever pushy or forceful, but talk can be very powerful, Mm -hmm. especially to a mixed-up little girl. (sighs) God. So that's the story of Dorothy Stratton. Yep, yep. Here's an update from a listener. He steered me toward an article online about an arborist in Halifax finding metal shards embedded in older trees around the city. Oh. Apparently these shards have been there since the Halifax explosion over 100 years ago. Oh, wow. From our episode four. Yeah. I'll post a link to the article in our show notes. This guy also mentioned his charity called Making Faces at makingfaces.ca. Making Faces is a non-profit organization that helps children with facial differences and supports anti-bullying initiatives in schools and youth organizations through innovative improvisational workshops. In 2003, Making Faces began offering a unique program 
of improvisational workshops for children with facial differences and began building self-esteem one smile at a time. In 1994, Making Faces founder Michael William Stark began presenting his unique improv-based workshops for children who, like himself, were born with or acquired a facial difference. In Michael's case, the most severe cleft lip and palate on record in British Columbia. Oh. These lively and engaging workshops brought a sense of fun and inclusion to a vulnerable minority of children who typically would have shied away from participating in the school and social activities most children enjoy and take for granted. Yeah. What a great idea. Oh, I love the sound of this organization. You can donate to their uh, initiative at their site. Again, that's makingfaces.ca. Yeah, go give it a shot, people. Make a donation. Absolutely. Thank you, Michael, for your story and hopefully us mentioning your site. Maybe somebody who needs you can find you. Let's hope so. Before we go, we want to give uh, shout-outs to our new patron patrons, and there's quite a few of you again. And the first three, you'll notice a pattern. I do. I see it already. There is Sarah Carroll from Hillsborough, Oregon. Mm -hmm. There is Sarah Byrne mm -hmm. from Peterborough, Ontario. Mm -hmm. And there is Sarah Zieski from West Kelowna, BC. Well, welcome to the three Sarahs. Yeah. We're glad to have you. And then Melissa Forge had to go and mess it all up. Why? Be because she's, she's not, not named Sarah. Sarah. Well, well, but thank you, Melissa. We're just kidding. Yeah, you got time to change it. <laughs> you could change your name. But I like Melissa. And then our next person is Megan from Gimli, Manitoba. And Gimli is the name of a character in... Uh, That's right. Yeah. It's on the tip of my tongue. Yeah. Yeah. But it's not Tolkien. Right. Come on. You can do it. Lord of the Rings. There you go. Yeah. Okay. There we go. And so Gimli was played by John Reese davies who I knew. Well. And well. he would say, hello, Mr. Brown. How are you today? <laughs> That's Aww. my uh, John Rhys Davies impression. He gave me a hundred bucks for Christmas. Crisp Benjamin Franklin. Wow. Yep. Damn. Nice man. No kidding. Alyssa Forvor from Clifton Park, New York. Our friend Heatherly from Fort Worth, Texas. Oh. Thank you, Heatherly. Yes. Hi, Heatherly. Very active in the Umber Yard. She's awesome people. Susan Cairns from Naples, Florida. Welcome. Naples. Naples. Get uh, them in the Naples. No, mom and dad used to stay in Naples sometimes for uh, when they would snowbird. Oh. Paula Wiley from Montreal, Quebec. Welcome, Paula. I will be traveling through Montreal. In a few weeks. Yep. Melanie Adams, another friend of ours from the Yumber Yard, who has corrected me on the my Newfoundland accent, saying oh, I sound yes. far too Irish. Yes, good job. She's Melanie. from Shoal Harbor. Out of respect, I will not yammer away in a more Irish than Newfie accent, but I will tell a Newfie joke. Here's how to speak Newfanese, and there's four words there, Scott. Just say them normally. Whale oil beef hooked. Whale oil beef hooked. I get it. Yeah. And it's accurate. <laughs> Thanks so much for your pledges. We really appreciate it. If you want to donate to us, you can do so at patreon.com slash darkpoutine or send us some donut money via PayPal at our email address, darkpoutinepodcast at gmail.com. Check out our website, darkpoutine.com, for show notes and other stuff. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and just search for Dark Poutine. Tell your friends. Don't forget about the Yumber Yard. We're coming close to 500 people in there. What? what? <laughs> it's getting super busy. Yeah. And 
of course. You can subscribe to us on your favorite podcast directory like iTunes Podcast, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, or Spotify. Or all of them. That is it for this week's episode. Whoa, we did it again, Scott. We did. And we're sweating like pigs. Oh my God, I'm dying. Yeah, but we have to do the after show. Oh my God. I mean, mean, yes. (laughs) Yeah. He means yes. Yes. Can't wait. Don't forget to be a good egg and not a bad apple. Goodbye, everybody. Bye, Scott Sweaty. Showcase. You were in a concentration camp in World War II. I was a young man, locked up in a terrible place. Based on the international best-selling book. But I found something there. Someone. We must keep living. Whatever it takes. The Tattooist of Auschwitz. All new Sundays on Showcase. Stream on Stack TV.